Once again, it is really good to be with God's people this morning. Uh, We've prayed for him to be at work, and he already has been at work in my heart and life. Um, I forgot to do it during announcements, but as I was singing, I was just thinking of thanking the worship team for leading us, which we don't do very often, but should we just clap or say amen, just thank them for... Thank you, worship team, for helping me praise him this morning. When life is um, really hard, when you're really hurting, when disappointment um, seems to be all around you, and joy and fulfillment are elusive, it is really, really helpful to have people around you, believers around you, who are both competent and, and loving. You know, if you have people around you who are, who are just loving, you, you have perhaps just sentiment. And if you have people around you who are, who are competent, they're, 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 they're biblical, you might find correction or help, uh, but not the other, not the love, not the compassion. And so when we are... In, in challenging times, we need people around us who are incredibly compassionate and incredibly competent at, at speaking the truth into our lives. And that's the situation in our text today uh, for, for King Saul. He's desperate. He is in trouble. And he has people around him who care about him and who actually know and love God and are competent as far as what the Scriptures teach. Uh, They are the kind of people we might call that that fill that that sweet spot or the the Goldilocks zone, or I'm not sure what the, the way we want to describe it, but Saul has these kind of people around him. And you and I not only need those kind of people around us, but God wants us to be that kind of person for others. People who are both loving and competent, those things going together. Well, let's dive into our text today and see what happens here as Saul is in a really bad place. Look with me, we are in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And an evil spirit, or a harmful spirit, or as Helen's text had, a distressing spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now let's just stop there for a moment and and talk about what is going on here. What is going on here? Now, at first read, if you haven't been with us, if you haven't been here in recent weeks or haven't been dialed in with 1 Samuel, this could be an upsetting verse. How is it that a loving and compassionate and good God sends an evil or distressing, or as the ESV has it, harmful spirit to the king of Israel? How is this happening? Look on the screen of 1 Samuel 15 to refresh you of what's happened. So the word of the Lord back in chapter 15 comes to Samuel. 
who functions as a prophet and as a judge and as a priest. And, and he says, the Lord says uh, to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made King Saul because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. I put this up here on the screen to help us understand why verse 14 shouldn't be so upsetting to us. The king of Israel, Saul, has turned away from the creator and sustainer, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And when Saul or anyone turns away from God, there is often discipline or judgment that comes. And that is essentially what we have going with this distressing or this harmful spirit. It might be troubling to us, but it shouldn't be if we are familiar with the scriptures and how God works. Look also on the screen at Mark's gospel, chapter 14. It says there, the Son of Man will go, that is Jesus, will go, will be crucified and die, just as it is written about him. God throughout the Bible, uses distressing, harmful spirits and people to accomplish his will, including Judas, including those who oppressed and sought the religious leaders and the Romans and those who wanted Jesus to be crucified. It was God's plan for him to die for the sins of the world. And yet, in a mysterious providence and sovereignty that no one can explain, he is, he is working out through all of the, working out the gospel, working out Jesus' death through all of that. So that's just on verse 14. I hope that has helped you to see why we have this, this tormenting or distressing or harmful spirit going towards Saul. Did you get that? Say amen or yes. You see what's going on? So that's, that's what's, what's going on here in verse 14. So when the king does not have the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, we have a problem. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have a problem and we need a solution to this problem. So the problem is the spirit of the Lord has left King Saul and a harmful spirit torments him. And there are a couple aspects of the solution to this problem. And the first aspect of the solution is a political solution. There is both a political and then a personal solution. So the political solution is we need a king who is filled with the Spirit of God. And those of you that were here last week saw that that next king is King David. Uh, so in chapter 16 and verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So the king of Israel, in this monarchical period of ancient Israel's history, needs the Spirit of God to be upon the king. Now, I don't know if you caught this last week or if you're going to catch it this week, but it's interesting to me, as far as I see it, I'd love to talk to any of you about this. It might have a different perspective later. But I don't think David or Saul 
or anyone other than Samuel and God and the reader of 1 Samuel understands that David has been anointed as king. They, they saw that he was anointed, but as king. No one else knows that at this point, except for Samuel and God and the reader. So Saul is still functioning as king. The spirit has left him. There is a political solution in that we have a new king, David, but he isn't really on the throne at this point, as we're going to see, as you heard in the passage that was just read. So there's a political solution that the reader knows about, a new king, David. He has the spirit, and there is a personal solution. So we have Saul tormented with this, this spirit from God as judgment upon him, and he needs help. He needs the kind of people around him that I was describing at the beginning of the sermon, and he actually has those kinds of people around him. So let's come back to our text now and see the personal solution to Saul's life and how this works out. Look with me at verses 15 through 18. So Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord, that is you, Saul, small l, let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. They know that music is part of the solution here. Let's get someone who can play the harp. Verse 17. So Saul, the, the Lord, small l, said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. Verse 18. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem. Again, no clue here in the text that this servant knows he's been anointed as king in the previous chapter, in the previous paragraphs, really. One of the servants answered, verse 18, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And then, I didn't draw it in my Bible, but I draw a big line right after that period in this next phrase, this next sentence. And the Lord is with him. I did circle that phrase in my Bible. And the Lord is with him. The careful reader of 1 Samuel will notice that these first few things that are said by the servant, that he is a brave man, that he's a warrior, that he, that he speaks well, that he's a fine-looking man, those are similar to what we heard about Saul. But this last little phrase is not similar to what we heard when Saul first came on the scene. And the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is with him, is with David. Look on the screen if we go back to chapter 9 when Saul came on the scene. Describing Saul, he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Again, the careful reader of 1 Samuel is noticing there is a difference between Saul and between David. And with David, there is this sentence, and the Lord is with him. The Lord is with David in a way that he was not with Saul. And here he is, brought in by these compassionate and competent people, these loving and biblically literate people, 
David is brought in not as king, but to comfort the king. To to comfort and help Saul. All right, back to our text. We've made it through 18. Let's go ahead and finish up. Our text for today is just 19 through 23, and then we're going to talk about application or implications the rest of the sermon. So verse 19. So Saul sent messengers. So he's heard about this, this one who's kind of like Saul, but the Lord is with him. He, Saul says, send messengers to Jesse, uh, the, his father. Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Verse 20. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. This is a godly father who respects the office of the king, who respects the monarch. And so he doesn't just send him. He doesn't just, yeah, go. He sends him with a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and he sends David to Saul. This is a good dad. Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much. This is the way people who are suffering should respond to the presence of believers who are both compassionate and competent. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. You see, all throughout here, even though David has been anointed as king, he is not functioning as king. No one knows. It seems to me, aside from the Lord, and Samuel, and the, and the reader of 1 Samuel. Verse 22, Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. This should be how believers are received by anyone who's in distress. I'm pleased with him. I'm pleased with her. I like him very much. This is someone David is someone like Saul's servants who is compassionate and who is competent with the gifts that God has given him. Verse 23, whenever the spirit from God, that is this distressing spirit, this harmful spirit, came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Again, the centrality of music here as a means of God's grace. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better in the evil spirit would leave him. These are the kind of attendants, the kind of servants that we want to have. These are the kinds of people that God wants you and me to be. People who are well-liked, not because of our appearance, but because the Lord is with us and because we are loving toward others as well as bringing our spiritual gifts or our talents like playing the harp in a God-centered way To help someone. That's what this young man, David, is doing after being anointed. So the remainder of the sermon here, I want to talk about application or implications. And I want to draw out two things, excuse me, three things. All good sermons have three, right? Not two. Three things from the text uh, that relate to our lives. And just I'll give you a forewarning here, a foreshadowing of what they are. So we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have music. And we have unnamed servants. Those are the three uh, implications uh, in this text. 
So regarding the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, we should be observing in 1 Samuel that the power of the Holy Spirit, not the king's organizational acumen, not his, his ability to be an administrator, but the power of the Spirit makes for a quality monarch, a quality king. It is the Spirit upon him. And we saw this actually both in Saul's life and we're seeing it now in David's life, the unknown king, if we can call him that. Look with me on the screen back at 1 Samuel 11. It says then, back then, if you remember, that was a good chapter, a good week for Saul. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. And Saul did great things in chapter 11. And it was leading the army well. And God was with him. So again, one of the things that we need to observe in this text is when we are talking about ancient Israel and the monarchy and kings, the Spirit came and left those kings in unique ways that is not, is not how he operates in the life of believers today. Every single Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently. And so this is something related to the monarchy of ancient Israel and the Spirit coming in power and leaving. And this is what we have seen happen. In fact, we see this in the Psalms as well. We see David praying. You're familiar. Almost everyone here is familiar with Psalm 51. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Does that sentence sound like it may have come from a familiar context? This context. Does it sound like today, as familiar as you are with Psalm 51, but if we put ourselves in David's shoes, and he has just witnessed, or is about to witness, the failure and demise of, of one king with whom the Spirit has left and the Spirit has come upon David, he is praying that that will not happen to him, that he won't have a distressing or harmful spirit, that God will not take his spirit from him. And so we need to pray Psalm 51 and Psalm 51:11 in light of the gospel and in light of what the New Testament teaches. One of the favorite things that I have that I got recently that's kind of new is this little book here. You see this little, this is my, I don't know what you would call it, Psalms Bible, my Psalter. It's just the Psalms. And I got this a few months ago and it has been so helpful to me to, to pray. I mean, I have the same exact thing in this this version and on my phone and everything, but for whatever reason, it has been so helpful to me to have this version of the Psalms to help me learn how to pray. And I want to just briefly, in light of where we are in, in 1 Samuel 16, uh, just read and kind of pray through in front of you Psalm 51. Let me begin at verse 8. And, and as you listen to me, Think about yourself taking Psalm 51 and praying it for yourself in light of the gospel, in light of the new covenant. This is, you know, 3,000 years later 
that we are praying this than when David originally prayed Psalm 51. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What David or what you or I are praying there when we pray, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, is recognizing that, that my life is partially messed up, Mike's life, because of my own sin, my own sins, my own bad decisions, my own lack of wisdom. So the bones that you have broken is a reference to the consequences in my own life. So let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, in other words, let, let the, the reality of how God has corrected me in my life and helped me repent of my sins, help me to rejoice in light of that. That's verse 8. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. As we pray that, we're praying that I would realize that as Joe's already helped us see, that God is not divided about us. I'm divided about my kids or my wife or myself. My heart isn't always compassionate and loving, but God's forgiveness for me is complete and total. So I'm reminding myself of that as I pray verse 9. And then verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then our verse that I have on the screen, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now as I pray verse 11, I'm not praying it as an ancient king in Israel, as one of the ancient kings of, of Israel. I know as a believer that the Spirit is with me permanently. And so as a Christian, the way the Spirit works on the, the bad end of the scale, I might be quenching the Spirit. On the good end of the, the scale, I am asking the Spirit to fill my life. And I need the Spirit's power. So that's where I want to be. So when I'm praying, take not your Holy Spirit for me in light of the gospel, in light of the new covenant, in light of the New Testament, what I'm praying is, fill me with your Spirit. I have the Spirit already. I know that because I am convicted greatly when I sin. And others are not. There are many of my friends and neighbors who are not believers that are very happy in their sins. Now, one day they won't be, but they are right now. But I'm not happy in my sins. I know the Spirit is in me, but I may not be filled with the Spirit. I may not have the kind of power of God that comes out of my life where someone goes, hey, I need to, we need to get Mike or fill in your name, we need to get so-and-so with so-and-so because the Spirit is so at work in, in that person's life, we need to get him near this person who has this harmful spirit going on. David was filled with the Holy Spirit and God wants you and me to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. Notice carefully, it doesn't say, do not drink wine. Did you get that? Can someone say amen? It doesn't say do not drink wine. In fact, if we go back to our text, what was part of the beautiful gifts coming to the king from the good father Jesse? What was it? Wine. So it's not saying don't drink wine. Do not get drunk on wine. Why not? Because you surrender your spirit to the evil one when you do. So don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So when we pray Psalm 51, we're not praying that the Spirit's going to leave Mike and come back to Mike and I don't know what's going to happen today. That's something that happened for ancient kings in Israel. I need to be filled with the Spirit 
and have power so that I can be a blessing to people's lives, especially those who might be really messed up and they might not be willing to identify it, but there may be a harmful spirit from the Lord upon them because they've turned away from God. That's a real general truth in all the scriptures. John Bloom writes this, he says, If we're not disturbed by how little we can do in our own power, I can do very little with Mike's power, we'll never be desperate enough to ask God for his. So as we're praying Psalm 51, we are praying to be filled with the Spirit and to be very close to God. Back to that phrase that I said was important in verse 18. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with David. The Spirit is upon him in power. And you know people in, whose, in, whose, in their lives, you know people whose lives where they're just filled with the Spirit and they're the kind of person you want to get near. They're the kind of person you want to get and, and get them with this person because there's the power of God there and it comes out and it blesses others. And, and that's why they got David and his harp because it was, this wasn't just nice-sounding music. This was God-centered Holy Spirit power that, that made evil and harmful spirit and distressing spirit go away. I have a little note in my notes here. Of, of, I just wrote my mother and father-in-law here who are both with the Lord. And they were like this, this they fit in this category of people that, that again, of, of, of Saul's attendants, his servants, that I described at the beginning of, of my sermon. People who were who are both loving and biblically competent. We often have people who are biblically competent who are really eager to correct, but they're often not compassionate people. And God calls us to be both of those things. And the kind of people that are both of those things are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone wants to be around them. That's the situation that, that David has. I like him very much. Hey, Jesse, is it okay if the king keeps him? I know he's been a real asset to you. He's been watching the sheep. He's the one who's been doing, been keeping the property going, the star thistle gone, and he has been doing a lot of good work, but I'd like him to stay with me. He, he was a huge blessing. This is what God has called us to be, and this is the kind of people that we need to be around, people that are filled with the Spirit. Those of you that like definitions, here it is. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? An event, I would change it to an events or a repeating, repeated event subsequent to conversion in which a believer experiences a fresh infilling with the Holy Spirit that may result in a variety of consequences, a variety of benefits. And what are they? These are good things including greater love for God, greater victory over sin, greater power for ministry. We see David doing great ministry with his harp here, and sometimes the receiving of new spiritual gifts. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater victory over my temptations and sin and your temptations and sins in life. Greater power for service, for serving God, for loving my neighbor, for serving the church, the people of God, and sometimes the receiving 
of new spiritual gifts. The Bible talks about us not just getting one gift and that's it, but eagerly desiring spiritual gifts. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You know, I don't know if you're uh, like me, but and I'm guessing many of us have been in, in this framework of mind, especially when you're reading the Gospels. You, 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 want, you wish you were there. <laughs> you, you, like, I would like to have been there and have seen Lazarus after he was dead for four days. Would that be cool? Uh, I would like to have been near the Sea of Galilee when there was this massive storm and just, whew, I mean, it just went. You know, normally, even the little storms we have here in the foothills, you can feel it coming and it gets colder in the wintertime and the, it changes and then the storm comes and the rain comes and then it leaves. There's this anticipation and then there's this after storm. But imagine this big old storm and just, oh, it's just calm. I would like to have been there. And I don't want to put those thoughts down. I mean, we've all probably had those thoughts. Those of us who've read the Gospels, I would have liked to have seen our Lord doing these things. But I think a, a, a perhaps better or more biblical frame of mind, look at me at John 16. Jesus says there, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. It is for your good and for my good that Jesus went to the right hand of the Father. Unless I go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, to every one of you. The church is global. The church is not American. It's not Chinese. It's not Russian. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, global community of believers in whom the Holy Spirit goes at any moment and empowers and so Jesus, if I'm reading this right, is saying, it's good that he's going away. And so the best time to live is where you have the availability of the Spirit to work in power in your life and in my life. I have that grass is always greener and, oh, I wish I... No, now is the time to be alive and to live and I need to be filled with the Spirit's power to do the ministry and the work that God wants me to do. Mine isn't playing a harp, but it is, what is it? Yours probably isn't playing a harp. Maybe it is playing an instrument. What is it that he wants you to do in power for his glory? So, the power of the Holy Spirit, not one's organizational acumen, makes for a quality monarch. The emphasis here is on the power of the Spirit. We'll move through these other two more quickly. We have three implications I, I mentioned. The Spirit, music, and unnamed service, servants. So the second thing, uh, as far as application goes today, is that God uses music as a conduit of his grace. Man, he's hit me hard with this this week, in a good way, this truth. Part of what we have to do when we read the Bible is we've got to go back and, and, and imagine life 3,000 years ago uh, when David and Saul 
had no smartphone to play music on. They had no CDs. No A-tracks. Can I get an amen? Anybody have an A-track? No reel-to-reel. No CDs. No electricity. No speakers. So you want music? You need a musician. You need an instrument. You need God-centered music. You need someone that the Lord is with him. And someone who can play the harp. Someone that can, that can take this, this harmful spirit away and help through God-centered, God-glorifying music. God uses music as a conduit of his grace. It is all over the scriptures. I'm going to open my, my little Psalter here, my Psalms, whatever you want to call this, my Psalms Bible. Psalm 108. It's, this is full of David's songs, of the musician. David, they're not all his, but many of these are his. We just kind of blow by that, a song. Think musician, think harp, a song, a psalm of David. Let me just read and and pray for you a few verses here, 1 to 4 of Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. This is one of those words for many of us isn't really that helpful. I don't hear my kids when they talk to each other using the word steadfast. Do you? Teenagers, steadfast, that's not their word. But the concept here is so important. My heart has unwavering faith in God. That's what steadfast means. Why do we need to pray this psalm? Because our our hearts are not often unwavering in the Lord Jesus. So we're praying, we're, we're praying a longing that my heart would be steadfast, O God, that I have unwavering faith in you. And then what's the next line? I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. That's not L-I-A-R. That's lyre. That's an instrument. It's like a harp. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. I'm just wondering, church, if God maybe thinks that we need music to help us to love him and to remain steadfast. Do you think so? He does. And and the great thing is we, we can actually play it through whatever device you've got. Let me jump to the end of Psalm 108, verse 13. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. It is he who will help me deal with my temptations and my struggles and my idols in my heart. It is he. Where does Psalm 108 begin? It begins with with the harp and the lyre and asking for this unwavering faith that my heart would be steadfast. And it ends with valiance, with, with courage confidence that God will tread down our foes and give us courage. Psalm 108, Kathy Keller with her husband Tim writes this about Psalm 108. True courage, David's psalm, one of his songs, true courage is not, I can do it. That is self-confidence. It is rather, this is more important than me. This is an important distinction that comes out in Psalm 108 and what Psalm 108 is using music for us to have this confidence in God and something that's more important than me. They go on, Kathy and Tim Keller. They write, in the animal kingdom, 
the mother undauntedly faces any size foe, not because she thinks she can win, but for the sake of her young. David will face any foe for the sake of his Lord, whom he loves above all. He's not looking at himself. That is the secret of courage. There is a huge difference between self-confidence and confidence that is God-centered that comes from him. And it has an other orientation just like God. God has an other orientation. At the very heart of Christian doctrine is our God exists in three persons. That within the Godhead there is an other orientation. That the Father looks to the Son. The Son looks to the Father. The Spirit looks to the Son and all all the permutations of, of that. That is at the very heart of God and at the heart of a life of a believer. And if we need his grace, if if we're going to receive his grace and have courage, music is going to be a part of that. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, And the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose. So here's a guy who wrote a lot of paragraphs and very little poetry, and he's trying to figure out why do we not why 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 do we write in poetry? Why why do we write in, in, in verse? We do it with music, that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections, to change us. Our, our affections, our emotions, who we are. The power of the Spirit comes out. God uses music as a conduit of his grace. Friday night, um, early in the evening, I was with uh, a woman from our congregation, Jane, who is very near death. I was with her husband, Scott. He's here this morning. And that day, we asked if she could be moved into a room without a roommate, and they moved her. And that night, Friday night, um, we're, we're in the room now, and we can play some music now that there isn't a roommate. And Scott, like David, is a musician. And Scott has written his own music and recorded his own music. And we dial that music up from from the phone and put it through the speaker in the room. And Jane, who cannot speak now, is is mostly nonverbal. And she hears, and we hear, this familiar, beautiful, God-glorifying music that Scott wrote and played. And the room changed. Our affections changed. Jane, when we left, was smiling. She couldn't articulate really anything, but I can tell you that my heart was moved, and I read her smiles in part as a factor of the music that she heard and brought peace to her soul. God uses music as a conduit of his grace. Friday night was a very special and sacred time, and music played a big part of that. I'm hoping that you are thinking now about the role that music has or should play 
in your life, whether you're alone and pressing play or whether you're a musician and sitting at the piano or you're a musician and you have your harp or guitar out, I'm praying that you would be thinking about that. This is what is going on in our text today. And the Lord is with David and God is using him to minister others. Third and final, and I'll close with this thing from our text today to apply into our lives, is notice that those who orchestrated all of this, all of these folks are unnamed. I circled attendants and servants, that word in, in my translations, all throughout here in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 17. Attendants, servants, they orchestrated all of this. It wasn't Saul, it wasn't David, it was unnamed servants who are central to God's plans. That was true then, 3,000 years ago. That is true today. As we close, I want to submit that you and I are unnamed servants. By that I mean, it is very likely, almost certain, that a century from now, very few or no one on this earth is going to know, maybe two centuries from now, your name or my name. But our work is important. What you do tomorrow is important. Do you know how important this was in Saul's life and in the history of Israel? These unnamed servants and attendants, it was huge. And we don't know their names. Your life is significant. And God wants to use you. And he wants you to be someone who is loving, but not the kind of love of this world that's just sentiment, that has no truth, it's just empty. The secular, liberal love that, that is just empty of the gospel. That's not love. You need to be loving and compassionate to your unbelieving neighbors, but they also need to know the truth of the gospel and God's holiness and the reality of his word. Our neighbors need both people who are loving and compassionate and who are competent with the scriptures. That is what comes into Saul's life because of these unnamed servants and attendants. Let's bow our heads and ask God to make us those kind of people. Lord, we close this sermon thinking of these people that we don't know their names, who said, hey, we need to get somebody who can play the harp, someone who is close to the Lord, someone whom the Spirit is upon. And they found that guy, and they brought him, and he did a great work. Lord, I pray that you would help us as people who most likely will not be written about in the centuries to come, that that fact and that reality would not blind us to how important our work is today and tomorrow in the lives of our neighbors, our extended family, neighbor, our extended family members, our classmates, our coworkers. You have a mission for us to love them and to make disciples. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.